Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 312th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's crazy like a fox and ready to steer the cloud ship. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Cliff Daigle, at Word of Commander on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. This show, as always, is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on an awesome Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, what do we have on the agenda this week? Well, this week we're going to talk about uh, some of the Magic Online uh, events that have happened recently. There's some pretty cool stuff going on there. We've also got uh, the top movers in paper and the top movers online, and some of these you might be able to predict. Some of these might be news to you. Then you and I are going to talk about our cards to watch and uh, about a reader pick that is very interesting. And our segment for this week is going to be Hasbro versus the Activist Investors, hashtag set the wizards free. All right, so for our Magic Online metagame week in review, we can kick off with the Modern Showcase Challenge, February 19th of 2022. That's this past Saturday. This one was won by Blue White Hammer Time, and uh, notable cards from Neon Dynasty in here include the Reality Chip and a single copy of Aganjo, Seat of the Empire. We had Living End in second and third. The first one was running one Viseju who endures and two Ottawara, uh, and then the Third place living end deck had one Ottawara, no Viseju. We had two Grixis Shadow in fourth and fifth, Amulet Titan in seventh, and Blue White Hammer Time again in eighth. Most interesting deck by far was this food combo deck that finished sixth. Uh, I played against a version of this on Historic in Arena the other day and got my ass kicked by this Ravenous Squirrel card which is something like the 26th card from Modern Horizons 2 to top 8 a modern event <laughs> since the release of that set. We're, we're getting down into the uncommons now, but MH2 is determined <laughs> to take over. Well, I mean, if, if you design a set that's supposed to shake up modern, then congratulations, Wizards. Those two sets have done it. So this this deck had four Ren and Six, four Cauldron Familiar, along with four Witches Oven, so it's got the Cat Oven combo, uh, which I also use in my historic deck. Four Gilded Goose, four Ragavan, because Ragavan just goes anywhere you can slot it. Uh, doesn't it? And I guess it actually has some, some synergies here, because Ragavan generates treasure tokens that you later sack, and when you sack an artifact or a creature, you put a plus one, plus one counter on Ravenous Squirrel. So it does... Pretty solid Tarmogoyf impression, and then has the upside of when you happen to have mana free and some spare artifacts sitting around on the table, which you might have from the three Trail of Crumbs that are in the deck. Not a card you see a lot in Modern. Um, Ravenous Squirrel can sack artifacts or creatures to gain a life and draw a card. So this is a Tarmogoyf slash card draw engine that also can gain you some points against decks like Burn. Probably underestimated up front in terms of its uh, ability to synergize with other cards in the format. 
four Fatal Push in the deck, four Mishwa's Bobble, one Nile Spellbomb, one Shadow Spear, and those three Trail of Crumbs that are generating uh, food tokens. Uh, when it enters the battlefield and whenever you sacrifice a food, you get to basically like double scry. Yeah, and you get to uh, put a permanent into your hand. If you look at the top two, uh, you have to pay one. If you look at the top two and put a card in, uh, permanent in your hand. But like the way that uh, the squirrel grows is a lot like um, there's a reason why. What's the dragon who sacrifices things? The Jund commander Corvold. guy? Corvold. Corvold, yeah. Corvold. Corvold. Yeah. So the squirrel is doing a pretty great mini Corvold impression, and uh, like you said, it gets out of hand really quickly in a deck like this. And I've seen versions of this that are that run Mayhem Devil to get closer to that Corvold and standard thing that was going on last year. Um, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that we're going to see post up very regularly in the top eight, but certainly worth uh, worth flagging. Now, over in the Modern Challenge on the Sunday, the things were a little more straightforward. We had New Jund, the updated Jund list, in first, Blue-Red Murktide in second and third, the third-place Murktide list running a copy of Ottawara Soaring City, and then the Blue-White Control that finished in fourth also had a copy of that land. Four-color Money Pile, which is what I would normally deem four-color Omnath Yorion, uh, was running a March of Otherworldly Light in their list, and then... Uh, Blue-Black Control was probably the most notable deck in this top eight. Four Snapcaster Mage and just a pile of Blue-Black Instants. Uh, Blue-White Hammer Time again in seventh, and then Burn in eighth. So, seeing the same thing week after week. Modern's in a very good place. Lots of the decks uh, are, seem viable. And then, more or less every top eight, you get one rogue deck that may or may not show up uh, in subsequent weeks. Lots going on. I like the format where it's at right now. I'm pretty happy with it, too. Um, I like seeing like people try out things, and I imagine like in Hammer Time you get that reality chip equipped and you're feeling pretty great about the world. I'm surprised we're, we're not seeing like more of the legendary lands that, uh, you know, they're just, they're just free rolls. And I, I guess the only thing is they aren't great if you're making, you want to make sure you got two colors early on or three colors early on because you can't really, can't fetch into them. They're not entirely free rules, right? Because one of the one of the reasons you don't people don't want to run Path to Exile anymore is giving people lands. And the problem with Beseju is that yes, it can deal with a problem problem permanent. If you're facing hammer time, the ability to get rid of a hammer could be very key. But if you target somebody's uh, whatever, they could go get a dual land or a tri land that they might need. So there there is there is counterplay to be had. And and some of the and the, the mana bases in this format are also often very ambitious, and that mono, that mono color production, uh, I think, is going to end up putting most decks in the position that I predicted. They're going to be running one, sometimes two copies of the green, blue, and white ones for the most part, and the those related specs are therefore more about broad play as opposed to number of copies per deck. Um, if, if the majority of decks run at least one or two of one of these, then they start to get fairly interesting given that all of them are posting up solid stats on EDH rec as well. Well, I don't mean free roll in terms of like, there's no consequence in terms of like casting Bazaju at their stuff. Um, it's more like, it, the land itself doesn't come into play tapped, so you don't have the trade-off that you have with the uh, Zendikar Mythic Lands, like where there's going to be a three-life price to pay if you need mana right away. But you, know. you do have a different 
thing holding you back if you're planning on putting the land into play, which is that they're legendary. If you run four of them and you've got multiple in hand yeah, you're and, not... and, and no targets, then you do have a problem. It, I think it's more about the ambition of the mana bases, and like you really have to have a golden reason to play this land that only taps for one mana. You know, you have to have a, a real desire for the Atawara effect or the Baseju or the Aganja, whatever the case may be. We'll we'll see if they start getting more. Uh, we start seeing more one ofs as modern goes along. I mean, I think I think it's a combination of all of those elements, and certain decks were are going to be more willing, right? Like the food combo deck had three Viseju. So right. there, there there will be a, a variety of need. And like the Amulet Titan deck had two, not four. Um, because they still, you know, it still is legendary. But yeah. they have it, for instance, because it can get rid of a Blood Moon. So I, I think it's actually what's more interesting about Viseju in particular is its impact strategically on the meta and how it makes certain decks stronger or weaker. Um but so far, I think it's just these are role players. They look like role players to me. And I and I think, therefore, that Boseju is probably overpriced. And as I'll talk about in a little bit, I think at least one version of Ottawara looks underpriced. Um, top paper movers. Jinja Taxes, Core Augur, non-foils out of the secret layer going from 15 to 20. That's only 33%. But worth flagging um, because we kind of predicted that with Jin showing up in Neon Dynasty, other Jin cards might be on, on the move. And indeed, that's exactly what we're seeing here. And then the rest of what we're, most of the rest of the action here for the top paper movers is related to the hot new commanders out of Neon Dynasty and the Neon Dynasty uh, commander decks. Blightsteel Colossus uh, uh, going from Mirrodin to Siege, this is original printing. Non-foils going 55 to 75, that's 36% gains on the back of Ishin, who is the top commander out of Neon Dynasty proper. Um... We have a Tally Primal Storm, the old border foils from Time Spiral Remastered, which I called last week to go 35 to 60 or something, already having gone 34 to 48. Definitely some pro trader pressure on those last week, and now we get to see whether the Ishin players will keep the plateau nice and high. Hero of Bladehold is another Ishin card out of Mirrodin Besiege, going from 10 to 16, getting double triggers, triggers on Bladehold, very nice. And then Fervent Charge out of Apocalypse going 15 to 24. This is basically up from like 2 or $3 to 24, so 10 times gains in the last six yeah, weeks. Yeah, it was less than that. I bought a copy of this for uh, Zergo Helm Smasher last year, and it was under a dollar. Yeah, so, you know, 20 times gains uh, <laughs> for folks that can exit over 20. And uh, that's also ish in action. City of Shadows out of the Dark is our reserve list representative of the week. Uh, kind of just slowly dried up and I, I guess all that really happened here is that some underpriced near mint copies on tcg got bought up uh, and it slid from 130 to 220 as the lowest uh, uh listed price usually when i see that go down i check ebay as well to see if you know if there's a bunch of 140 dollars copies lying around there then the price shift isn't very real but you can't really there's nothing over there either so this kind of like obscure land uh from the dark uh definitely seems like it has posted a fresh plateau We've got Spreading Seas at a Zendikar, original foils, 80 to 140. Eventually, you just get every foil, blue, white control player in the world on original foil Spreading Seas, and there's just none left, and that's exactly where we're at. Uh, Magma Opus out of Strixhaven, going from 2 to 350. That's a Hanada card, uh, and a pretty fun one at that. It's pretty glorious, yeah. 
The Wandering Emperor Foil Etched pre-orders are paying off big. I flagged this early for the Pro Traders and picked up some myself around 105, 110, uh, some even a little bit lower than that. And currently the lowest posted price on TCG Player is 200, and I think there's only a single copy at that price. And let me just see what the next lowest priced copy is. Uh, you know, we got, mm, no, more like three or four copies at 200 and then a couple at 230, etc. I would expect these to backslide a bit, but the thing here is Haruyuya has posted their buy list prices for a lot of the premium cards uh, from Neon Dynasty, and they are surprisingly high um, on the etched cards unlike previous etched offerings. And I think that's because they have shifted the way that the etched foiling is implemented on these cards. And it looks pretty good on the Wandering Emperor. The etched card foils, of course, are also exclusive to the collector boosters. Um, you can't find them in draft and set boxes. And Haruyuya, even on English foil etched, is offering 20,000 yen, which is pretty close to 180 US. So we will definitely be sending some over to buy lists that were snapped up near 110, and there may be a very successful quick flip arbitrage there if the buy list holds in the meantime. Do you think it might not? It's entirely possible it can slide backwards from this point. I mean, whoever, the early bird gets the worm on this stuff. So if somebody, some right. major vendor snaps off 20 copies in the open market, Facebook, TCG, eBay, whatever, and they regularly traffic cards to Japan, and they get their package at the mail first, and it lands at Haruyuya, then the buy list is going to drop significantly. Like, it could drop from 20,000 yen to 10,000 yen in a week if they feel like they've got enough on hand that they need to then sell through. Especially since they've got copies posted at, so I want to say it was 250 or 300, but let me just double check that. I think they were sold out last I checked, actually. And this is true of a bunch of the other... Uh, big name foils to the various versions of the Wandering Emperor collector booster foil showcase, The even the borderless foils they had posted pretty high, um, and most of that stuff was sold out. Like Japanese foil draft set booster version was sold out at 180,000 yen, which is pretty close to fifteen or 1,600 US. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And they had the English foil etched posted at 50,000 yen. So that's actually closer to... 40, 430 or something and that's marked as sold out wow so um like you said the pre-orders are really paying off and we're, we're going to ship them uh, a bunch that we can find from our pro traders japanese for etch foil they had posted retail at the same price so no no uh they basically equivocated the japanese and english versions of the etch foil at the same price and they had 13 sales of etched foil the wandering emperor in japanese at that price wow. so they're actually they're actually moving and they and they moved three copies of the hundred and eighty thousand yen japanese foil showcase draft set version um point of caution for people out there that are hunting after the english foil draft slash set booster showcase version it matters where it was produced if you buy a pack in the store and happen to crack it, you're going to want to know on the bottom of that box it came out of, does it say made in Japan or made in USA? Because if it's made in USA and you're trying to send it to Japan later, you're, it's probably going to be considered to be a collector booster foil because it likely has the same rainbow, rainbow foil treatment that you will see coming out of collector booster boxes. 
if it is a Japanese-produced set booster box, which exists even if some of them are English. That started with Crimson Vow, I believe, or maybe it was Midnight Hunt. Right. You have English boxes printed in Japan. It's not just uh, exactly. Japanese products being printed in Japan. Yeah, so what could happen is you could pull a a, a foil showcase uh, Kaito or the Wandering Emperor, and it could have a subtler foiling process on it. Um, and if you notice that, then it, it is probably Japanese produced, and they're sold out on those, um, how are you yet, 70,000 yen, so pretty close to 600 US. <laughs> so pretty impressive stuff all, the way, all, all over the place there. Um, we've also got uh, Aurelia's Fury foils out of Gate Crash going from 5 to just about 10, almost a double up. And that's also a Hanada card um, because of the multi-targeting. Also probably the kind of thing that people that were speculating five years ago might have sitting around in their bad specs box. That's also a, a, a big thing. Like I remember it was pre-selling for ridiculous amounts, that particular card. And Non-foils nobody... pre-ordered for $40 for Aurelia's Fury. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, you look no. that up, or was it in from your own I remember, history? I, re I remember that, but I didn't spec on it at that price. Um, I probably bought some later at a price that was still too high, but it wasn't very many of them. Maybe a playset. Uh, Goblin Charbelcher foils from EMA going from 10 to 20. Travis called this way back on episode, episode 239 uh, at when they were $4 to go to 15 so he's got a nice win there. Uh, and the Charbelcher deck seems very real in modern. If it's not tier 1, it's certainly tier 1.5. Um, shows up in top 8s relatively frequently and seems very competitive. Herald of the Pantheon non-foils out of Commander 2018 going from 2 to 425. That's basically a double up on the back of Goshintai builds getting put together. Mind Leech Mass. Didn't even think of this when I built Satoru last week, but this makes right. sense. When it hits, because you ninjutsu it in for 4. Uh, off your commander's ability it's got trample so it's generally going to hit and then you get to look at uh, cards in the opponent's hand or is it on their library i can't remember off the top of my head i think it's hand and then you get to cast one for free so that's pretty fun and then voice of the blessed is on this list as a stand-in for a whole bunch of other foils from double feature that are just going to the moon at least in terms of listed prices i don't know how many of them are actually selling at these new plateaus but this one went from 9 to $28 as people are trying to s squeeze the price on the basis of nobody cracking the product. I have stayed out of this entirely so far, and I'm just waiting for reports from pro traders and other people in the hobby as to whether they've successfully exited on these specs. Uh, and then the top gainer of the week was Brutal Horde Chief Foils out of Fate Reforged, going from $3 to $18. That's 500% gains on the back of Ishin, which is the top commander so far from the End Dynasty over on EDH Rec. Ishin is in just over 1,200 decks so far, and Satoru Umazawa, the deck I put together for this weekend's Pro Trader event, uh, was is just is about 100 decks behind at 1150 both of these decks look very, very real. They're very fun to build. They're unique builds because you're picking cards that, that interact with their specific abilities that you wouldn't normally run in other decks. And I'm not at all surprised to see people building plenty of this. Uh, Hanada was also one of my selections when we did the set review as being one of the top commanders in the set, and it is indeed number three. Then you have Tatsunari, Toad Rider at just under 700 decks, and Light Paws, Emperor's Voice at about 500. Um... 
Tatsunari, uh, Saltai Enchantment sounds pretty sweet. I should, uh, I should look into that one. But, you know, I really like, uh, Ishin as a, uh, thing where you're not just, like, focused on, I'm gonna build ridiculous value, I'm gonna build a deck that's gonna smash your face twice as quickly. That's really great in Commander. Now, over in the Neon Dynasty Commander, uh, deck cards, uh, the only commander that's anywhere close to the top three from the main set is Goshintai of Life's Origin, which is at right. uh, a thousand decks so far. Five color enchantments uh, with lots of shrines. Uh, looks like it's getting built. Also a unique deck to build. And that for me, and I'm not surprised to see this with other people, um, this is what gets me interested in building a commander, is building it, building a deck where you get to go through your collection, pick out a bunch of cards that you wouldn't otherwise have any use for and apply them and go through the process of building the deck as one part of the fun and then table it and have a unique play experience. And then, you know, <clears throat> I think a good commander collection is like 5, 10, 15, 20 decks that are all unique play experiences. So you, you're going to sit down with your friends for a night, you're going to play two or three games, and you get to table three completely different decks and have some fun. I'm for that. Uh, let's talk about some of the magic online movers. Uh, Ethereal Forager, the Commander 20 card, uh, just about doubled up from 3.5 to just over 7. Uh, apparently people are really expecting Murktide to be banned, and I suppose this would be a stand-in. Yeah. So, well, this you know, this card, it, Murktide replaced this in these decks. Right. So the assumption so go back is, to it. yeah, the assumption is if they ban Murktide, they'll go back to Ethereal Forager. Um, because blue red Delver was all over the place in in the Legacy Challenge, um, and th there is the thinking is that the blue red deck is just too good in Legacy and just needs to be cut back a notch uh, to make other colors rather than other than blue a little more viable in Legacy again. Um, we also had Kappa Cannoneer. This is the uh, it comes at a treasure chest, I believe, because the there's no release on Magic Online that would naturally have this in packs. And it went from right. some low number last week. I think we had this on the on the table last week as well. Yeah, it went from 11 tickets to 64, slid back to 30, and then went from 30 to 100. <laughs> 100 ticket, 100 tickets. Uh, so if you got in at 11 and exited near, I don't know, 80 or something, then you're up 60 ticks a copy. You're doing just fine. And it was... This new legacy deck was um, six and one in a recent legacy challenge, and the deck is called Eight Cast apparently, and it has four Emery Lurker of the Lock, four Psy Master Thopterist. Probably keep, worth keeping an eye on foil extended arts of Emery and foils of Psy Master Thopterist. As a result, Cap four Cap Cannoneer, three Thought Monitor out of Modern Horizons two. Force of Wills, Thoughtcast, Chalice of the Void, Lotus Petal, Mishra's Bobble, Mox Opal, Urza's Bobble, uh, Pything Needle, and Retrofitter Foundry, two Shadow Spear, and a Soul Guide Lantern, with four Ancient Tomb, three Island, four Seed of the Psy Nod, and four Urza Saga. Looks like a pretty fun deck. Because <laughs> even if they manage to kill the Kappa Cannoneer, which is not easy given that it has Ward 4, and is going to come in for one or two mana as a 4-4, uh, a lot of the time. Uh, Emery Lurker of the Lock can start, uh, can let you bring it back from the graveyard and cast it again just by tapping. Yeah, that's uh, 
That's a lot of value. I like it a lot. So uh, that's the Kappa Cannoneer story. And then we have Tower of the Magistrate. Uh, also comes at a treasure chest going from 0.48 ticks to 2.91. 500% gains. And I'm guessing that's legacy usage in a variety of decks against this deck and against other right. artifacts. Because the Kappa Cannoneer... make all the... Uh... All the uh, equipment fall off. All the reconfigure just like bloop. Bye. Well, and uh, well, it's not about equipment. I think this is just it gives something protection from artifacts, right? So it means right. that you can block Kappa Cannoneer with whatever, and it can't get through. Oh, that's true too. Yeah. I forgot about that part. I'm I'm just used to like in Commander you can do, uh, you know, no, no, no kind of things with uh, Tower of the Magistrate, and I I forgot about the whole like. I just need to block this giant thing that doesn't have trample. Well, I mean, there are two Shadow Spears in here, so you're not wrong. Uh, all right, so that was the Magic Online Movers. Moving on over to Cards to Watch. Before uh, we get into that, we have a, a special note to make. Remember, James? Oh, yes, we do. That's very true. I keep forgetting our, our post-segment two bumper. <laughs> so, now is likely a good time to remind you all about the Cool Stuff, Inc. Customer Rewards Program. The more you buy with our 5% off coupon, Finance 5... The closer you get to even higher rewards, including up to 15% off magic singles and assorted minis, head on over to CoolStuffInc.com today to build your loyalty and save big. Now, with that in the books, uh, moving on over to Cards to Watch. A ways back, I called War of the Spark booster boxes around $100. And this was at a time where standard booster boxes were generally thought to be a pretty dead in the water kind of spec. But I didn't just call the regular War of the Sparks. I called the Japanese War of the Spark booster boxes. And I don't even know if if TCG Player lets people list Japanese sealed product these days. They might for this particular sealed product. I think they... Well, you can list it, but you basically have to put the language in the details. Oh. And the, the lowest listed price for a Japanese box of War of the Spark on TCG right now is $248. And even the lowest price for an English box of War of the Spark is $163. So for the kinds of people that can churn funds on a regular basis, you know, buying up a collection and flipping it for plus 15 or 20% or whatever, or buying up some stuff in Europe and arbitraging to CK in the US, or buying up foil etch wandering emperors and arbitraging over to Japan, yeah, you can probably pull your gains uh, much more quickly and compound more quickly. But for the kind of player slash collector that likes to just buy something, throw it in the closet, forget about it for a while, and then either draft it if it doesn't go well, or pull it out of the closet and make some money if it does, I'm starting to think that Japanese Neon Dynasty boxes are going to be very similar to Japanese War of the Spark booster boxes. Here's the thing. There's not just one, but something like five or six prominent chase cards from this set in Japan. Now, not all of them are available in the set booster boxes, because, for instance, Foil Etch is only in the collector booster boxes. And that makes me think that the Japanese collector booster boxes that we got through the Pro Trader uh, group buy should probably just be kept sealed and maybe future $400 plus uh, CBs. But even just the kinds of things that can come out of a set booster box, given that the chase cards are much more expensive coming out of a set booster box, and also hard, much harder to pull, which means if you crack your set product, you may be doing yourself a disservice versus the lottery ticket premium that the market may attribute to that sealed product 
a year or two down the road. And the fact that uh, Neon Dynasty is looking like one of the most popular Magic sets of all time. So I think you're going to get a shot at these Japanese set booster boxes at a very reasonable price. And in fact, you know, if you're a pro trader, you've already got them pretty close to $105 a box. On Amazon, unusually so, because this is not usually the case, you can get both Japanese and Russian boxes currently at 110 And a couple times now they've sold out and then restocked. Now, what happened with Japanese War of the Spark was there ended up being a window of opportunity 6 to 12 months out to get a final wave of those set booster boxes that was pushed out from distributors based on the popularity of the set and people chasing the Altart Planeswalkers. I suspect you don't need to be in a huge rush to pick these off either. But if you're interested, you might want to go ahead and dip your toe in the water and bite off a case from Amazon or ProTrader in the very near future. On the basis that I'm already seeing these sell for 140 to 160 in Japan, which is a pretty hefty premium given that the set just came out this last weekend. And there will almost certainly be a subsequent wave or waves. So you you could also play the waiting game and not put your money to work until further down the road to try to narrow the gap between when you get in and when you get out. But regardless of when you decide to pull the trigger, I think you're going to want to have a case of the Japanese set booster boxes on hand. So I'm going to call these to go like 107 to one call it 170 or something uh within 18 months so i have a couple questions about this i saw this in the list and i thought there's a lot of variables at play and uh especially with like the some of these variables like where it was made um what language it's in these are these are important things to to hit and if you can get them at a, a good price, especially um, these are the set booster boxes you're talking about, which do have some advantages over the... Um, they, is it for sure that they have a different uh, printing look as a set booster, a set foil? Yeah, okay. because the, yeah, because the singles are being sold differently in Japan already. All right. So it's the same thing where like the text box is more foiled and more obvious sort of a thing? Less. Less obvious. Excuse but me. It's... Things will look, it'll be look like a glossier, thicker, more rainbowy foil. And we saw this with Kojima Soren, right? I've posted right. pictures in the Discord of a set foil Soren versus a CB Soren. There was also a blue shift difference with Sorens. Um, I haven't held any of the... Um, Wandering Emperors uh, yet. Yeah, the showcase cards yet to know exactly how it plays out but the, a few people in our discord have already showed me pictures of their wandering emperor quote-unquote set foils and i and they looked very much to me like they were probably u.s produced set boxes um right. the japanese boxes that are listed on amazon and the ones that we ordered from asia are definitely japanese produced so that should be your target um it if should. If there's a subsequent wave, as there was with War of the Spark Japanese boxes, and it ends up being produced in Texas, those will probably not be do as well because they won't be reliably able to source the hottest versions of the chase cards and have the Japanese vendors de- determine that they are like Series 1 or Wave 1 boxes or whatever. Let me um, 
give you a, a counterpoint here. You're talking about like the most chase cards. And um, if you're just, because okay, the, the price of those chase cards, especially like these set booster specific, super special foiling, you know, the, the, the exquisite detail for those who have a discerning taste, like why wouldn't you just go in on those copies you know, now, or if you want to wait a couple of weeks, you know, whatever you feel the market is right. Like, I feel like buying the whole, it, defend to me the idea that I want the whole box and I'm going to be super patient on that rather than just moving in on the premium cards as it is. I think that it's a simpler, timing the market is one of the biggest factors in investing successfully because many people will get in too early too late ex- get out too early too late etc and you could just say my name when you're saying that stuff but you don't have to be <laughs> subtle about this you could just say like what i did wrong here so compared to say the wandering emperor foil etched some pro traders i saw snapped off copies on tcg player today over 200 that to me could very easily end up being a incorrect move because when I was buying them at 105 or 107, I'm in a pretty secure position if I get a quick courier package off the Japan to be able to quick flip buy list. Now, I may elect to only do that with a few of my copies. The rest I might try to hold for a couple years and see if it turns into an Amano. Because if there's an outside, my kind of worst case scenario is that the money is, is uh, 0% growth for some period of time. And the upside is that it's a $1,000 plus card in two years. Um, which I think... The Wandering Emperor draft slash set foil Japanese versions have the best chance of being, given what they're already being listed at, right? The So what I'm saying about the chase cards is that the opportunities for those might be both behind us and in front of us. I think we're in the, the hottest thing on opening weekend that gets pushed up has a pretty decent chance of retracing. And so if you got in very early, like I got Saito borderless foils for $69 or something. And I've got buy list outs for those in Japan as well. But if you bought them at 110 on Friday afternoon, well, now they're down to 80. So it's pretty easy to mess up that timing. And I think some of that retracing is a week to four weeks ahead of us. And then you might want to look at some of these chase cards again in North America, reassess versus the Japanese buy list and whatever. But I think the set booster cases in Japanese, given that they are available on Amazon now, but might not be for subsequent waves later in the year, they might, but they might not. We don't know. Um, Seems like a pretty safe bet while we know that they are Japanese produced. Because I think that Japan's demand for Japanese produced set boxes of this set is going to be very high. And Japan will get less waves overall than the global amount of English waves. And if there is a subsequent wave that it ends up being Texas produced and then goes to Japan, then the original wave one Japanese boxes are going to be even are going to be even more sought after. Um, so I think it's more of a like if you're an armchair speculator that likes to fire and forget, doesn't doesn't like to like doesn't want to have to track pricing on a day-to-day basis and you're comfortable holding on a long horizon, this is the kind of pick that's for you. I I see where you're coming from with all this, but given the variables, like, I think, uh, for instance, that, like, I'd rather have two foil Street Fighters over the long term. Like, the, 
going in for sealed stuff um, hasn't really paid off with the exception of like War of the Spark uh, Japanese stuff and uh, Commander Legends uh, collector boosters. Wow, like the... not, not, not quite. It's quite a few of the premium products would be on that list. So you'd also have to add Double Masters VIPs. Okay, that yeah. list, you'd also have to so like, add... So those are... But we're talking, like, the premium products, and th- you're talking, like, the set boxes, which can be if you catch the right manufacturer and everything. I'm not I'm not saying this is a bad spec, but I'm saying that, like, for somebody who doesn't want to worry too much, I would I would advocate for, like, secret layers over, over this. Well, there's actually no way to debate that point from my end, because I fully... I, I fully believe that if you pick the best secret layer in a given super drop, um, you're going to be in a pretty good position. I actually put a, a big, huge post up on I saw that, yeah. the Pro Trader Best Ideas channel, which is where I occasionally write mini articles for the Pro Traders. And it this means one I don't was, write that article is what that means. <laughs> they, they basically looking at the numbers last week as to, should you be buying secret layer bundles where you basically get like 14 to 20% off all of the secret layers you buy if you take all of them either all of the foil ones or all the non-foils or some of all of the foils and non-foils versus figuring out which drop is likely to have the biggest upside individually and the answer was very clearly at least with the data i looked at so far that you should go after the hottest drop so if we're looking at something like the street fighter drop which was probably which was on my list to potentially uh put on the cards to watch list next week Right. Um, and we're and we're going into the future to argue Street Fighter foil secret layer versus Japanese set booster boxes of Neo. I think the Street Fighter will get there faster. So I agree. Okay. But I, I see where you're coming from the, about the 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 set boxes offering a pretty unique set of cards if you can make sure that you get like the the right source and the right language like that is that really is going to offer your best chance at hitting one of these chase cards and as a result this is a sealed product most likely to grow that isn't going to be like the collector boosters the vips the the, the more premium stuff so well, I'm, and, I'm... And, th- and this is and this is the thing is that with the japanese war the spark boxes that ended up being on amazon in a subsequent wave they were produced in the u.s so they didn't have access to series one monos etc the with the Japanese boxes that are available on Amazon were, were available pre-order period on Amazon and are still available on Amazon, at least last I checked this afternoon, um, we know that they are Japanese produced. And we know that the Russian ones are Belgian produced and that the uh, and the Korean ones, I think, were Belgian produced as well. So you, you know where they're coming from. And that lets you lock down a Japanese-produced set booster case. That could, in Japan, end up being worth, in a couple of years, like 300 a box. So right. you, you could have an... Now, it's a pretty heavy case. you got to ship it to Japan. But Japan's going to burn through this. Like, it's, it's a very, very popular set over there. So And it's very popular here. And if you look at something like War of the Spark, those boxes are not expensive... The Japanese boxes are not $100 more expensive because people like the Japanese language. They're $100 more expensive because they have the sexiest chase cards in them. The Japanese Altar War of the Spark Planeswalkers. And some of that demand is carryover from Japan. So if you like sealed product and you are you like to have 
you know, you're the kind of person that likes to sock away a, you know, a case of set booster boxes or whatever anyway, don't get the English ones. Get those Japanese ones on Amazon or via ProTrader and you'll be in better position. All right. I'm with you on that. All right. What is your first selection? Uh, my first pick this week uh, harkens back to, as you said earlier, uh, the big cards are, uh, the big commanders are Ishin and Hinata. And uh, having played against a Hinata list and I saw this happen, uh, I immediately wanted to A, strangle the person and B, build the deck. And it was when they had Hinata out and they cast Sublime Epiphany for two mana. And I just, I threw up in my mouth and then my jaw hit the ground, and then it might happen in reverse order. I don't know. But considering that every one of those modes has a target, it just gets cheaper and better and cheaper and better. So right now, you can get the uh, foil extended art copies around $10 on TCG Player, and I think they're going to be 25 not just from Hinata's Demand. It's already in 18,000 decks on EDH Rec, so it's already a good commander card. But adding it to Hinata... And getting your six mana spell, if you're just countering and drawing, that's already two mana. That's already easier than Cryptic Command. And you're going to find some other permanent to bounce. Now you're at three mana. So maybe there's a triggered ability in there that you can take care of. I don't know. But it's just going to come down to, like, do you have a token, a creature you want to copy? Great. You're at two mana to counter a spell, bounce a thing, copy your creature, and draw a card. For two mana. So I I can't believe that these are still in the $10 range and these should be going up. There's a, a pretty nice ramp on them on TCG right now. The thing about this card, as, as you said, it already has significant EDH demand and was, was out from, as an M21 foil extended art, it's a summer FEA. So there are less of them around than, say, a fall set. And we're just at the kind of window of opportunity where they're starting to drain out and, and facing a pretty steep ramp. So even had there not been a new commander that made, that absolutely wants the card in the deck, this card was already headed in the right direction. Then add in that, you know, the kinds of commanders that are going, that can also make use of Sublime, Sublime Epiphany. You have like Cast Dissident Mage that lets you cast instances or sorceries out of your graveyard um, on each of your turns. You have Jinja Taxis out of the new set that doubles up on your spells. So you get to cast double Sublime, Sublime oh, Epiphanies instead of casting it for cheaper. You're a ter- terrible person. Terrible person. <laughs> so, so you get up to, what, 10, 10 different effects? Yeah, in, something in that like scenario. that. That's gross. Um, so yeah, th- th- this one is a slam dunk to me, and and I think much more likely than the, the set booster case to make people money faster. Because there isn't super deep supply on these. Like, there's only maybe 20 or 30 $10 copies left on the internet in North America, and then they're going to be 15 to $20 copies and pushing higher. So, yeah, yeah this, so. this one is a closed case as far as I'm concerned. Uh, tell me about your next pick, because it's one of my favorite cards. So the Farewell Foil Showcases ended up being the weird card that is ultra-valuable in Japan. Um, when we first flagged that there was a lot of anime art on a bunch of the Neon Dynasty cards, the question became... Okay, well then, you know, is there going to be a situation like there was with Strixhaven Mystical Archives, Japanese uh, alternate arts, where you had cards like Channel, Grapeshot, Ephemerate, um, that were where the set booster foils were suddenly worth way more than people expected them to be. 
because they had prominent anime artists that worked on them. And it turns out that Farewell falls into that space in Japan because it's got uh, very colorful, uh, well-considered chibi art um, by a medium popular uh, anime artist. And the translation of the uh, word farewell in, on the Spanish card is adios, which is going to be very popular. And in Japan, it really is. in Japan, apparently the translation is equally attractive. And so they're sold out of all foil showcases. They're, the foil Japanese uh, draft set booster versions are sold out at almost 140 US. Wow. But even the English foil uh, collector booster versions, which is like the wor- quote-unquote worst version um, in foil, is sold out at 5,000 uh, 5, yen, which is about 45 US. And more importantly, the buy list on this card in Japan right now is sitting at about $18. And you can currently get them on TCG Player today at 10 And I could easily see that falling further to 6 to $8 in the near future if enough copies aren't siphoned off of there and shipped off to Japan. So pretty confident that though this, you know, the buy list in Japan may take a dip as we head towards peak supply, that out six months, a year, year and a half, two years, you're sending some stuff over there. You're going to have a pretty good out. And the card, you know, your backup plan is that the card is just good period as a solid sweeper for your EDH decks. So you bite off a few of these copies, you're you're not going to be upset if you end up having to play them. But where things are headed with this card in Japan, where they're you know they're offering two thousand yen even on the English foil collector booster versions. If you're ordering off TCG Player, and the vendor pulled it from a draft set box, then you you might get five thousand yen. So you might be able to buy them at 10 and buy list at 40. Now that might only happen one out of every 10 copies you get, but it's going to put you over the top on the move. I mean, I think the card is going to be, it's likely to be one of the top EDA Trek cards from the set because it's so incredibly, it's both universal and versatile. Like you don't get to, you get to choose exactly like how bad it is for you versus how bad it is for your opponents. Um, there's there's everything to love about this. Uh, I've got it on my agenda to buy a lot of these, and especially this uh, showcase foil. And I'm not ready. I, I don't like to move in on the first weekend, but if it's already buy listing at seventeen dollars for the 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 FEA versions that you can buy here for ten. Well, show, showcase foil version. Show, right. The I'm sorry. The showcase foil. Um, the glow neon glow soft glow. I think it's called. Um. Yeah, this is uh, a, a great pick, and it's a card that, like I said, I've been thinking about buying, so uh, maybe I need to move up my timetable a little bit. I was planning on being more patient. Farewell is in the top five EDH rec cards from Neon Dynasty. It's it's Baseju, Otawara, uh, Takanuma, Farewell, and Aganjo. I mean, the lands being top ones is not really a surprise to me. That That seems... That's going to be hard to beat, is the is the lands. So, uh, yeah, farewells. Keep an eye on those, because they could they could get even cheaper than where they're at now. And uh, it's, it's the kind of thing you can buy list through our Japanese buy list program with ProTrader and potentially do well with. And your next selection? 
my other pick this week, um, you know, I picked a Hanada card and I'm having an Ishin card. Uh, everybody is already doing the run on things that say when a creature attacks. Um, I think Revenge of the Ravens is a really cute card to add to this. You can attack somebody and uh, somebody else attacks an opponent and you get a double trigger from that because it's not just your stuff. But um, we have not gotten around to some of the other necessary cards in the deck. And if you're playing red, white, black, you are actively cheating yourself out of good times if you're not running Ruinous Ultimatum. Uh, the showcase foils, uh, you can still get them for around $18. And I'm picking them to do a, a pretty straight du double up to around the 35 range. It's already in 23,000 commander decks. So the, the demand is real. It's one of the best cards you can have. And if your most popular new commander is these colors, this one's about to take a bump. So uh, get ready to have the incredible feeling of 7 mana. Get rid of all of your problems. It feels so good to cast this card. It's it's unfair, really. I mean, it's basically a better Cyclonic Rift in your colors, if you're yes. in the right colors. It's just not instant, and it's not blue, which means that, you know, it's automatically like, me, it's not blue. And the inclusion rate in the top five Boros commanders is like 50% plus across the board for Ishin, Snapdax, Kielsen, uh, Jirina Kudro and Queen Marquesa. There's just oh, basically right. I forgot about Marquesa. There's basically no reason to not run this card. And Ikoria Foil Extended Arts because there is no showcase um, of this. You know, there the ramp is there. We're down to twenty listings on TCG. These are already you know without Ishin, these were already headed in the right direction. They were already going to push you know thirty five or forty. So for you to say it's going to go eighteen to thirty six or something and double up in the next year seems very reasonable to me. Yep, get them while you can, folks. All right. So I've been quoted on Twitter as pointing out that Boseju pre-ordering at forty was way too much. Um, which for anybody who pays attention to MTG Finance, everyone was just nodding their head anyway. But and it's already down to about twenty bucks. I predict that that can get down closer to ten than twenty as we head towards peak supply here, um, because I think it's going to see a broad play pattern. And then later we work 20 again, but it's got to get lower in, in the interim. Now, currently, the, if you look at the Boseju uh, fancy versions, uh, it's a little weird because we have Extended Arts and Borderless, right? And the I think the art is better on the Borderless, personally. Um, the non-foil Extended Arts of Boseju are 26 right now the borderless are 34 so it looks like the market agrees that the borderless are worth more as well even though the extended arts are actually technically more rare um and if we look at alternatively at Ottawara, it also has extended art and borderless uh non-foil and foil and the Ottawara soaring city borderless foils are currently at 20 dollars with 27 listings and the extended arts are at uh, $12 with 58 listings. So there are less of the borderless sitting around. But the extended arts are actually more rare, right? Because the extended arts are only to be found in the collector booster boxes, whereas the borderless could be find, found in all of the products. 
I mean, it it's going to be dependent on, like, uh, I don't know what the drop rate is going to be in the other boosters. Uh, I don't know what the relative number of boosters opened are. I imagine that the the you're right that it will be slightly that the the presence in draft and set boosters will put it a little bit higher because you know all things being equal in the commander boosters but i don't know how significant that number is going to be but yes i would agree with your overall statement it's got to be something like 10 or 20 percent less of the extended arts at least now, because we, we know that the fancy treatments, the showcase treatments and borderless treatments in the draft and set booster boxes went from one every two occurrences of the card to one every seven, as per the notes from Ben Blyweiss at Star City Games last week on Twitter. Um, right. And that changes changes the math and certainly uh, mutes the impact overall. But Ottawa extended art foils at 12, and I'm, I'm going to say wait till they get even lower, because they probably will in the near future, so I'm going to say target them closer to 10, and they might even get lower. They could be $6 to $8 cards when all is said and done, but that's going to be too low. Some people will gravitate towards the borderless foils because they have the, like, uh, Death, death uh, Star Destroyer, like, Star Wars thing going on. Right. But there's no, but there's no way they're worth double when there's more of them. And and looking over the modern inclusion lists, Ottawa is seeing almost as much play as Besaju. And Ottawa and Besaju are not far off each other on EDH Rec either. If we look at the the top two cards in the set, it's it's these two cards side by side. And yes, Besaju is so far in thirty seven percent of green decks with four thousand copies registered. Ottawa is only in 2,700, 20% of blue decks, but I suspect that gap is going to narrow. I think more blue decks will end up running Ottawa as time goes on, and a little less green decks will run Boseju, and the gap will narrow, and I can't see Ottawa foil extended arts longer term on, say, an 18 or 24 month horizon, not doubling up from 6, 8, 10, or 12 to. 16 18 20 22 kind of thing so the the call is the call is 10 to 20 in 18 months 10 to 20 is a is pretty easy thing to do i think all of the um all these legendary lands are going to get there in that kind of time frame so this is a pretty easy thing to do um i agree with you also that it's going to lower in price whoops excuse me i thought i muted that um so, yeah, I am completely with you, and I think this is a, a solid pick, too. Uh, our reader pick... Are you ready to talk about our reader pick? Our pro trader pick, I should say. Uh, yeah, we can go on to the pro trader card of the week. Not readers, I mean, listeners, yeah. right? Yeah, listeners. Um, but it's a pro trader selection. Uh, so... Is... Uh, oh, you wanted to? You can. No, go for it. You're already in the, in, in the trenches doing your thing. <laughs> is uh thanks to our pro trader uh apoc7 picked the blood moon that just came in the secret drop the mschf they just call themselves mischief right like they don't yeah or do they like yeah 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 so the secret layer one just dropped um this is the foil that looks like some kind of planetary artwork it's all gold it, it's like a really unique looking card there is another card in magic that looks like this uh, you can get it for around $25 right now, and uh, they're calling it to go to 40 Like, there's a lot of it available right now, but uh, we were looking at this uh, before we started recording, and 
there is a whole lot of um, copies moving by the playset. It's like at least one a day, somebody is like, I need a playset of this particular Blood Moon. And that bodes really well for where this set is going. So um, you've got other chase versions that you can look for. Uh, the borderless foils uh, are still at 40, right? Yeah, that's what you put on here. Um, the masterpiece ones, super expensive. Those are like, uh, that was the invocation at $100. So there's, there's room for this one to grow. And uh, we thought that this was a, a solid pick to make that growth because it's so unique and there is no chance of them, of gaming company, finding a pallet of these and unpacking it all. Yeah. I think the Mischief is a very popular drop. I think the best cards out of it are going to do well. Um, so far, sales are very brisk. People picking up twos, threes, fours. Hard to know how much of that is speculatory versus player demand. But you have to imagine that usually most demand is player demand. Um, speculation is a minority of all sales. Inventory is still deep, um, but they are selling well. No chance of a reprint of this specific version. So I think for this to go you know, 25 to 40 over the course of a year seems very reasonable. Um, it might see some price weakness as vendors undercut each other. There's plenty of units that haven't been posted to TCG yet. Um, people are still receiving these. So you could see this get down to 20 maybe, you could see it 18. That kind of weakness would just make me more more interested in in picking it up, but understand that you are there's definitely a waiting game here. Like I don't think it's going to double within 6 months. It could, but I think it's easier smarter to plan for 12 and then see how things go. Um it's a very unique cool looking card. Now one potential factor here is Bosejo actually makes Blood Moon worse in modern and a lot of, against a lot of the decks that where Blood Moon is good, they now have access to Beseju to counter it. And so, for instance, I saw Aspiring Spike was running Magus of the Moon in most of the relevant decks he was running this week instead of Blood Moon. Because Beseju can't kill creatures. Well, I mean, that's that's part of the fun of wanting to be a Blood Moon deck, is you get, uh, you know, a couple ways to, to make this thing happen. But yeah, but my my point is that there may be less people looking to buy fancy blood moons this year if Basaju puts it on its heels in the format. We will have to see. I think that's gonna we'll 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 have some data in the next couple of weeks about just how prevalent Basaju is. And you're right, you know, people don't want to necessarily give that basic land up. But uh, if your plan is to prison lock somebody on a blood moon and then just you know attack them with. Uh, Magus of the Moon 10 times, then yeah, Poseidon gets a lot better against the regular Blood Moon. So there was another Pro Trader submission that we wanted to talk about and explain why we didn't pick it. Uh, Ophiomancer Foils from Commander Collection Black were submitted. They're currently down to just 15 listings on TCG Player, which makes it look like there's not a lot of these. But the thing is, there's plenty of Commander Collection Black sitting around sealed that can fill in this gap if, if needs be. Um, so I'll be surprised if a supply-side play develops here in the in the very near future. This is the first time a Fiamancer's got a foil. Uh, it's a very good EDH rack card. Um, and the art is good. So th these are all pros for this selection. But the thing that held us back from picking it is we went back and looked at Commander Collection Green and compared it to something like Worldly Tutor, where Worldly Tutor had never had a foil before either, because it was, what, 6th edition and Visions? Right. Um, and so the foils in Commander Collection Green 
you know, should have been a big deal. But they have basically been steady or slightly down a few dollars in the last year. Now, I believe that, you know, that's at 16 listings as well. And I believe that those will eventually be a $100 plus card. But it might be that we are not, you know, knowing that Commander Collection Green Worldly Tutors could be purchased a year later and make the spec. I think you can make the argument that Worldly Tutor as a spec might be the spec today. And a year from now, a Theomancer Foils might be the spec. Yeah, I mean, the when you don't have a, a movement on the price for the um, the the first time it's in foil, you know, we, we thought that Worldly Tutor, we also looked at some of the other cards that have had their, their first foil treatment. You know, it's it's tempting to think that uh, the between the demand and the prices that it's automatically going to go up. But in this example, it hasn't. And I don't know if it's the distribution model for Commander Collections, but these have been relatively flat since they came out. It might just be that they priced it perfectly. Um, we've had a year for Commander Collection Green to drain out of uh, different vendors and into people's decks. Maybe we're about to see some of those bump, but, you know, uh, this is what we wanted to talk about. It's always good to hear some of the, the counter perspectives in terms of, like, what didn't we pick? Because we like to talk about the things that are awesome, but we also spend time talking to each other about what is uh, a less useful spec. Also worth flagging that, you know, Commander Collection Green Premium, which is something that Protators were buying 14 or 15 months ago uh, in the Discord at 145 a box. Lowest current price on those on TCG Player is about... 185 to 190 with 13 listings left so those are probably future 250 dollars boxes and we did have a commander collection black um wave of at 448 so 112 box so if those go 112 to 160 to, to 180 within a year people will be doing just fine on those as well yep so uh that's our picks and good job apoc 7 for highlighting the blood moon for us we really appreciate that Cool. Now, our weekly topic is the Set the Wizards Free. Uh, <laughs> where to begin on this? So, uh, Do you want me to give you uh, a real layperson's perspective on it before you give yours? Or, like, how do you want to do this? L- let, me lay out, let me lay out the basic facts, and then you, and you can kick us, kick us off with opinion. Okay. So, there is a, what would, is being, I think, generously referred to as an activist investor... Uh, Alta Fox. And Alta Fox is a hedge fund or something uh, that owns 2.5% of Hasbro. Hasbro being the parent company that owns Wizards of the Coast and has done for quite some time. Um, their argument is basically that Hasbro overall is being mismanaged and that in specific, um, they are milking Wizards of the Coast as a cash cow and redirecting a bunch of the profit that is generated through Wizards into projects that are not paying off for the company at large, while at the same time providing ridiculous levels of compensation for their executives during a period of time where Hasbro stock has underperformed the market by a significant degree. And so as shareholders of Hasbro, they want to shake things up. They have nominated board members for Hasbro to consider, and they are looking to potentially fight a proxy war whereby they might recruit other uh, major investors in the company 
to try to support their uh, their activism uh, and shake up Hasbro's board and then potentially spin off Wizards of the Coast. And I need to clarify that this doesn't mean that they would sell it to another company, which is something we've talked about in the, and debated in the ProTrader Discord uh, in recent months, but that they would essentially sell it to their own... Uh, they would spin it off as another company, and then the shares of that company would be distributed in the form of a share div- a stock dividend back to existing Hasbro investors. So they, if you owned Hasbro shares, or if you're AltaFox, you end up owning Wizards of the Coast as a fresh entity. And their argument is that they think that once the value of Wizards of the Coast is fully uh, revealed to the market in a transparent fashion, that it might boost the Hasbro share price by nearly double. This is their their uh, proposal. So their new members they they want to put install people on the Hasbro board with the end goal of do, of performing the spinoff because they believe that Wizards. Uh, set free to repurpose their profitability on their own projects would even further accelerate the value of that company when it's standing when it's freestanding and then help Hasbro via shakeup on their board to set more reasonable compensation packages at an executive level or at least justify the, those compensation packages by accelerating the potential of Hasbro proper, which is mostly a, to- a retail toy business, which has suffered greatly with the closing, the bankruptcy of Toys R Us in the U.S. and the increasing shift in kids' playtime towards the digital. So that's basically where we stand. Um, it's also notable that John Finkel is uh, an employee, a hedge fund manager at AltaFox, as I understand it, and has been nominated by AltaFox to be a member of Hasbro's board. So you've got the the famous pro tour player, John Finkel, potentially the best player, magic player of all time that would put, that would have a say in the future of Wizards of the Coast from above them, which would be, which I think got, I think resonated with a lot of players, um, but also I think led people down some unlikely thought paths that I'll get to in a few moments after you give me your first take on this. All right. So my first take is that I don't trust anyone who is a professional stock market person. And I'm coming from a perspective that somebody who is doing this is looking for like opportunities to exploit something where they feel money isn't being made correctly or there's a something where there's uh, an inequality of information or of property or of cash and like uh, you mentioned Toys R Us there's uh, other examples of like an investment firm who buys a company uses the debt that it acquired uh, to uh, basically push the company under and like end off selling it for parts that's not what we're talking about here because it's not like Wizards is going to get sold into anything. What Wizards is, like, it, this goes back to, like, why did Hasbro buy Wizards in the first place? It's because they were, you know, not valued correctly and they saw an opportunity for growth here. Uh, when, when was uh, Wizards acquired by Hasbro? Like, five years ago? Six? No, much more than that. Ten or fifteen, oh, really? I think. Maybe oh, even really? twenty. Maybe even twenty. I don't think it was 20 years ago. Yeah, let me let me double check that, but keep talking. 
Okay, so uh, I have a healthy distrust for all this. I mean, it's really cute that John Finkel wants to be on the board of what might be Wizards as its own company. No, no, no. He wants to be on the board at Hasbro. At board at Hasbro, excuse that, me. That, that's what he'd been nominated for. Now, now, so, pre- now, from there, it's possible that some of these people nominated to the Hasbro board could be attempt to be spun off as executives within a new Wizards of the Coast, but that has yet to be determined. Um, like, to my mind, you don't actually want John running Wizards because no. it's not his area of expertise. But right. he might he might be a solid board member for the purposes of accomplishing what Altafox is, is out to accomplish. Um, it was September 1999 that has Wizards of the Coast. So it was actually 23 years ago. That is so much more recent than I thought it was. All right. Less so, less recent. Less recent. Yes. So thinking back to 99 when Hasbro bought Wizards, like what was Wizards like in 1999? Much smaller um, company. Much smaller company. Uh, did not have Arena. Uh, 1999, I don't even think Magic Online was a thing. I think Magic um, Online is 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about when you picked up Wizards, like I don't even... Wizards had bought Dungeons and Dragons by then, and that might have been the big reason for Hasbro to pick up uh, have, uh, Wizards. So, like, yeah, because Wizards bought TSR really early. That was I remember. I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, '99. That's Mercadian Nin- Nin- masks. '97. Yeah. They bought, right. they bought they bought Dungeons and Dragons for 25 million, a brand that's currently valued over a billion. Right, and that's what we're we're talking about here. Is that these are things that have Magic's brand has grown phenomenally, and uh, Hasbro's different brands like they make a buttload of money off Monopoly, but there's not a lot of like growth there. You know, you have you have to go buy a new Monopoly because like you spill the soda on all your uh, Monopoly money and things like that, or you go buy your um, specialty Monopoly, you know, your Star Wars Monopoly, whatever the case may be. So, I I get that. Wizards has grown in in income in the the amount of money they make, and they especially like these last couple of years, like the pandemic's been really good for Wizards, and it really bums me out because I like playing in stores, and Wizards is finding out fuck a bunch of game stores, like their their model is just moving away from it entirely. They're selling us secret layers direct. They're using Amazon to distribute stuff. Uh, they are focusing a lot of money on Arena and Magic Online, and so like, well, Arena anyway, not Magic Online. Right. That's it. That's in maintenance mode. They just offloaded it to a third-party software developer. That's also true. Uh, maybe it'll get the the maintenance and development it needs. But mm, it's going to get the maintenance, but not the development. The entire purpose of hiring that particular firm was that they are experts at keeping legacy games afloat, while the company focuses on their other projects. Well, then that's where we're at. Um, I don't, I don't think it's going to make a. Well, this could be just the naive side of me talking, who doesn't like talk, uh, thinking about the capitalist hell that we currently live in. But like, I, I want to think that either way, it wouldn't have a huge effect on the day to day of, you know, new sets coming out. I feel like the the big difference, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like the big difference would be in stuff like the frequency and pace of secret layers, of like how often we get these premium products, because Wizards has been, you know, 
pushing us those last couple of years like what will you buy what will you buy what will you buy and like the only thing we haven't bought was the throne of eldraine super bundle that had like a three by three uncut sheet in it that's about the only premium product they've launched that hasn't done really well well double feature it's this month but uh, okay so So those are the only two misses but i think we need to go higher level i i I don't think let me jump in with with my quick take. My quick take is a, is as follows. I think your instincts are correct, and I think many people share them. You can't trust AltaFox to do what's right for players. I saw tons of players piping up on social media, being like, "Oh, this is going to be so awesome! This, this, and this will happen. We're going to get the pro tour back because John's in charge." No, and I'm like, no, dude, John Finkel's interests here are financial career. <laughs> does, does he? lay awake at night fantasizing about things he could do to make magic better probably a little but that his ultimate responsibilities here are to alta fox and the making of a lot of money so the players that think that wizards getting a shake-up and being spun off from hasbro would be automatically good for them i don't think they're wrong I just think you need to put big, huge question marks around that and wait for it to develop. Because I'm very confident that if Alta Fox succeeds, there will be some interesting changes. I'm confident that Wizards will be freed to repurpose their extreme profits and point them at their own brands, which are primarily with Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and & Dragons and a bunch of smaller properties. Um, but I don't think that the end result there is, uh, an uptick in the pace of product release per se. I think that for wizards to go wider and address big, a broader audience with additional niches or to go, um, deeper in terms of attracting more people to existing product lines, what is more likely is that they would have funds freed up to spend on marketing projects. And I see this as uh, IP building war chest. You can finally get a solid animated series for Magic the Gathering on Netflix or Amazon. You can, which is a project that was supposed to be going, like should have been launched by now for Chandra apparently as as the core character, but we haven't heard anything about it for ages. So I have no idea where we are Man, in the production that, cycle. The, uh... I don't want to interrupt you uh, too much, but like that, the Neon Dynasty Kamigawa, like the little trailer that they did, I want that whole thing, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently, that's a that's a very famous anime uh, an- anime studio in Japan that primarily works on Japanese projects and is always booked solid. So uh, a pro trader that that is aware of such things had messaged me and said, you know, it's very impressive that they actually got these guys on board because they usually, usually you can't get them. But I'm I'm assuming that Hasbro just threw so much money uh, at their feet that that it was a yes, um, and yes that anime and then the War of the Spark trailer that everybody loved and the uh, Critical Role Kickstarter that launched on Amazon this month that is some of the best fantasy animation we've ever gotten uh, in in terms of being you know heartfelt funny true to the source material etc and demonstrating the potential of brands like D and magic um to provide like high quality entertainment um 
I think that war chest could be directed at those kinds of things because one of the things, one of the reasons that we are in the premium era of magic is because I think wizards had decided that it was easier to milk the um, the whales in our community for more money per year than it was to get fresh bodies into the player base. Um, and so I think I think that a war chest on on projects is possible it's also possible that wizards could go out acquiring other games they could like if they thought flesh and blood was was going to have legs they might go after legend legend story studios or whatever um those kind of acquisitions would be more feasible if they didn't have hasbro milking their profits and redirecting them to other things that have nothing to do with their brands um i don't think that it means you get the pro tour back because I don't, but I, because I don't think that the market dynamics that led to those decisions are going to change anytime soon. That is mostly, and we've talked about this on the cast before with Travis. You know, I think that's mostly uh, been about them realizing that social media, um, for much less cost, ends up promoting the brand much more effectively. So if you look at something like the millions of views per year on the Command Zone, and you compare it to Max real twitch stats for pro tours and so forth because keep in mind wizards was padding those numbers for ages um you it, it becomes very obvious that you know youtube and twitter and instagram and whatever the next social platforms are over the over the next five ten years are much more important to the brand than a pro tour would be and so there'll always be some form of competitive magic but i don't think that john getting into the driver's seat on the board his you know his first directive is going to be to reboot the pro tour no that yeah the whole pro tour is a a, a different topic because that, that brings up a lot of questions but go on i think one of the other ways they would use uh the recapture of their own profits would be to build out arena much more quickly like you could if you told me that wizards was spun off tomorrow one of the first things I would expect announced within the first six months to a year would be that they are, in fact, going to shut down Magic Online. They're going to move to Arena only. It's going to have Modern. It's going to have Legacy. They're going to, pro- they're going to, they're going to program all the cards. And they could do that just by targeting cards that are playable instead of moving all the sets over. That, that would be the most effective way to do it. You just figure that's out... A, like, that's a really interesting idea. So you're saying that, like... You don't need to draft. You don't need to draft. Yeah, you don't need to draft every every set in Magic's history. They could slowly add those over time if they they thought it was worthwhile. But you don't really. There's not really a lot of impetus for them to do that because they're already releasing new draft sets every few months anyway. They they that they have huge marketing campaigns around. So it just makes sense to keep you drafting the new sets. But if you want to add Modern and Legacy, you just have to take the whatever it is, 300, 500, 700 cards max. I don't know. Um, they get played across the entire format. And at, encode them into Arena, and then you're good to go. Um, huh. And it would be slightly different than Modern, because if new cards appeared in Paper Modern, the format could be out of sync. But you'd be a lot closer to your goal. And you could have monthly releases where you add new cards. You could be like, oh, um, uh, Colossus Hammer just started getting played, because Hammer Time is emergent. So well, a, I month, mean, like... a month later, they add it to the format. Right now, they have the data for, you know, every modern event, every modern uh, challenge. You know, they they have exactly a list of how many of each copy of what card got played, even down to all the fun singletons. So, like, that could be 
their their project and i I never thought of just like okay if you're gonna make arena serious you're gonna make arena the way to play then you need to give everybody the cards that they want i mean you'd you'd need to adjust the the arena economy in some way like you gotta let people buy wild cards at that point but well um, one of one of the things that would have to i think goes the way of the dinosaur is that you can't have a situation where people can for a long period of time play a format like legacy where it doesn't get doesn't have fresh cards injected into it very often um if they don't have to pay to play you're gonna have to have you have to have entry fees balance off the lack of demand for new cards the the older the format is the more that that is true sure um, to make their economics work um anyway these are just this is all just like hypotheticals but the the bottom line is this (laughs) Alta Fox, uh, A, is in it for themselves. B, is not guaranteed to run Hasbro or Wizards any better. And it's not even going to be them doing it, right? They're going to be nominating people who will then nominate people that will then maneuver other people. And they're going to install the management eventually that they think uh, works for the new spun-off Wizards of the Coast. But the original Hasbro board still has plenty of power, even if they get some members on it. And they're going to have a lot to say about who ends up in those driver's seats. And that may or may not benefit the players. A lot could happen. It could make a big difference. It could make a small difference. It could make no difference. It could be worse. Like that, that is a possibility. Like they can, they can actually win their proxy battle successfully a year down the road. The game is actually headed in a worse direction. (laughs) Lots of things are possible. It's also very possible that they lose this proxy activity. Like this isn't a 51% investor just putting a flag up and saying, this is what I am doing, whether you like it or not. They only own 2.5%. They've got to get a bunch of other factions amongst Hasbro shareholders uh, rallied to their cause and convince them that this is the way to go. And they've got to win whatever internal struggles develop around, you know, the Hasbro executive and the board of directors they have a lot of hurdles to overcome. So, um, I have, I have a question for you when you're, when you got a second, go for it. Okay. So here's uh, the primary point of concern that, that I have that like you have this group of investors who are like wizards of the coast is making all the money. Hasbro is not making all the money. We want wizards of the coast to be its own company. We want to be owners in this with new wizards company. That's making all the money. Because we want to make all of that money. And right now... Well, no, like, but they're, they, let's be clear. Their primary goal is to publicize their plans, win the proxy battle, and then the share to res- the shares to respond. Okay. They, now, they I, may I claim, now, they may claim to be long-term, like, they may be claim to be long Hasbro, as it would be termed in the investment space that they're planning on holding their shares for a long period of time, but they could just as easily be be looking for an off-ramp here. Like they want to boost the share price a hundred bucks and then get out to some extent. It might not be all, they might not be looking to unload all of their shares, but again, they're in this for themselves. They're, their shares, right. they, they own a big chunk of the company and their shares aren't going anywhere. So this is all about them trying to boost share price. And that that's what I was going to say is that, um, what everybody needs to keep in mind is that these are people with uh, a clear and statedly clear financial interest in this. 
they don't give two craps about the game as long as the game makes money. And there's a a real strong temptation to be like, John Finkel's going in and he's going to understand and he's going to fix the Pro Tour and bring back all these other problems when like, no, Wizards is making gobs of money with things right as they are. Um, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic on us ever getting anything close to a Pro Tour ever again, to be honest, but that's a different conversation. Um, the, The unbridled optimism of people and the hopefulness of like, they want things to be the way they were. And I, I think that's a very dangerous mentality, especially when you're dealing with people who would be completely happy to strip mine the company as long as they got their big bag of money. Yeah, and the bottom and the bottom that's line That's what you gotta that, be aware of. Totally. And and the thing is that Wizards saw that post their uh downplaying of their competitive circuit and their de-investment in that circuit the game has been growing leaps and bounds and so some people say that that's a shift in strategy but i think from wizard's perspective the competitive scene in the pro tour was always a afterthought they thought it was important but they never thought it was important as the people that were heavily emotionally invested in it they always knew because they had the data that the majority of their base was more casual than that. That the majority of magic cards were bought by people that were more casual than that. That the majority of magic was still played at kitchen tables. That has always been the case. And the smartest vendors in the magic space have said that five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That, yeah, competitive card, you know, in a, in a busy, if you go to an F&M at a busy store in a major city where they have a strong competitive scene, it feels like magic revolves around that. But that's because the majority of the players at their kitchen tables were always invisible to those people. And it was a, you know, people on the inside looking out, not realizing what was around them kind of a kind of a thing. And that's why so when they when they killed the pro tour, there were so many voices yelling, oh, they're killing magic. And it's like, no, you don't understand. They only feel comfortable doing that because they know it won't kill magic. If they thought it would kill magic, they would never do that. If they needed the Pro Tour to make money, they would. we would still have it. They've already right. proven that they don't need the Pro Tour to make money. They're making more now than they were before they, had, they got rid of it. So, yeah, there'll be some form of competitive magic, but I think it's much more likely to be experience-driven. You know, you might see a reinvestment in events if we get in, if we could, you know, for the... For the love of all the magic gods, get into a position where COVID is behind us. I'm not Seriously. holding my I'm, I'm not holding my breath. Like I think we've got another year or two left of that, unfortunately. Ugh. But I hate it when you're right. Uh, but <laughs> if we could get into that position, then they could start. And it just so happened that that coincided with, you know, the wizards actually being freed. Um, then yeah, that war chest could go to work on marketing projects, and one of them might be you know working with channel fireball or or star city or whoever or new partners to run big huge events that would have you know five thousand person tournaments and whatever um and people might think that that was like the you know the uh a return to competitive magic but in fact it would just be a return to large events that would happen to feature competitive magic i would settle for a return to large events where we could we could have that gathering again, but that's a that's a separate podcast that we, we need to talk about when those things will come back. 
All right. So in bottom line, I wouldn't hold your breath. They got they got a lot of work to do to actually win this battle they're engaged in, and uh, it's going to play out over some period of time. So I'm sure this won't be the last time we discuss it, and uh, we will follow up with people as we learn more. Um, so I guess we'll call that a, a wrap for episode 312. Cliff, where can folks find you online? People can find me online at uh, on Twitter at Word of Commander or my uh, weekly articles every Friday on mtgprice.com. You guys can find me on Twitter at mdgcritic as well as the, my occasional articles on mdgprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, once again, we'd like to remind everybody that MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed products, and a plethora of other collectibles. Please use the, promo- the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com, that's finance with the number 5, in order to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Thanks so much for having me on this week, James. Thanks for being with us again, Cliff, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.